This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. In order for Howard to be set free, this is the sequence of events. He would have to first stand trial for the murder of his parents and be found insane. Then he would have to go through a sanity hearing and be found sane so that he could be released as a free person. That's a lot of steps. That's a lot of steps. Howard Pearson's murder trial in Austin, Texas, started in November of 1963 amid national media buzz. He was now 49 years old and at the center of another courtroom drama. Every major news outlet covered it, one of the wildest stories in decades. Howard had killed his parents, covered it up, and was then sent to a mental hospital. From there, he had escaped twice, spent years on the run, only to turn himself in. And then, after nearly 30 years of observation, doctors declared that he was sane. Now the district attorney wanted to put him behind prison bars, finally. But Howard's siblings, Alice and Bill, continued to fund his defense. The jury sat in silence in the crowded courtroom. Howard's attorney, Tom Reevely, presented his list of witnesses. Author Gary Laverne says that the majority were physicians and experts on mental disorders. His argument basically was he was insane when he killed his parents, but he has spent so much time in an institution that he has been successfully treated, and in addition to that, he's burnt out. If you recover sanity, we call it a burnout. Reevely had a tricky job. He had to convince the jury that Howard was insane in 1935, but sane right now. I got a psychiatrist, a successful, well-known doctor, and I found out that there was a local psychiatrist there in Austin who knew the Pearson family and knew them at the time this happened. We, we had a lot of the things that he had written, his notes that he had kept. For some reason, Bill had kept all of those and gave them to uh, Dr. Wade. So Howard's brother, Bill, had collected notes for decades about his brother's mental illness, and we don't know why. Maybe he wanted evidence as to why Howard should continue to stay in the mental hospital. Or maybe Bill was scared of his brother and he needed some assurance that he would stay institutionalized. In 1963, all of Reevely's experts came to one conclusion. They all agreed that, that he was a paranoid schizophrenic. And they all pointed out Howard's troubling history. He was antisocial, depressed, and ran away every chance he had. They even talked about his difficulties as a baby. Apparently, his physicians couldn't find a formula that he could eat and keep down, and he almost died several times. When his brother Bill testified, he put it simply, I never really knew what he was thinking. A psychiatrist believed that Howard didn't understand that it was wrong to kill his parents. Bill and the entire list of defense witnesses all said that Howard was insane in 1935. But Gary Laverne still doesn't agree with that assessment because Howard really knew how to plan. He organized and executed a double murder, a cover-up, and two escapes. 
He's not stupid, and he's not so mentally diminished that he can't pull this stuff off. Reevely and his team faced a formidable opponent in a savvy district attorney. The DA decided to use Rusk's superintendent to prove that Howard knew exactly what he was doing in 1935. In his opinion, Pearson was sane when he did it, but the experience of what he did and the aftermath drove him into insanity. So, Kastner was saying that Howard was sane during the murders, but insane after, and then sane again in his final years in the state mental hospital. Sounds a little bit confusing, right? Apparently, members of the jury thought so, too. The panel was made up of seven men and five women, and they deliberated for five hours, and both sides were becoming pretty nervous. The jury considered Reevely's argument that Howard was insane in 1935 and could not be held responsible, and they finally agreed. They found Howard not guilty of killing his parents by reason of insanity. So Howard wouldn't be sent to prison. He wouldn't be given the death penalty. And he should be released immediately, at least according to the head of Rusk Hospital, Dr. Kastner. But that decision required another hearing, this time with just a judge. He weighed the evidence and seemed to put a lot of faith in Dr. Kastner. The judge believed that Howard was no longer a threat to the public or himself he had the capability of leading a healthy life. He found that Howard was now sane. And just like that, Howard Pearson was free after 28 years. And his brother and sister were now concerned. Yes, they had fought for this, but Howard could be unpredictable. Would he be a danger? If he were provoked, maybe and he would be provoked soon. Howard packed up his belongings, signed some paperwork, and walked out of the psychiatric hospital that had been his home since his last recapture. He had been institutionalized for more than half of his life, almost 30 years. Gary Laverne says that he first needed to sort out where to go because he couldn't stay in Texas. Well, Howard understood that he could no longer live in Austin because of his own notoriety. He had the resources to do whatever he wanted to do, go wherever he wanted to go, because Bill and Alice had protected his inheritance. And it was a pretty big inheritance. Before his release, Bill filed paperwork with the probate court documents that detailed just how much money Howard was receiving. He had a share of some rental property in Fort Worth, which earned him about $1,200 a month. And there were monthly payments from his father's investments in Shell Oil that were about $1,300 a month. But that was just the beginning. Howard could use that money to start his new life. And there would be even more money to come later on. I would have expected for Howard to be thrilled about all of this. After all this time, he was finally free. But Howard's niece, Ann Pearson, says that being released wasn't as big of a relief to him as you might think. Um, When he first was released, I think he was very grateful to be released and sort of timid and shy and working his way out in the world, you know, and trying things out for the first, really for the first time. 
1963, Howard Pearson's family was relieved and in agreement that a not guilty verdict was the right decision. And that still surprises me because I would assume that many victims' families would feel quite differently. And in fact, that was the case in 2017, when University of Texas student Kendricks White was found not guilty by reason of insanity for stabbing four students. There were decidedly mixed emotions for the survivors of that case, and Stuart Bayless was one of the students who was injured in the attack. He remembers a startling moment in court right after the verdict. You, you would imagine he had the right state of mind to actually do this heinous act. Um, and so we get, we get told he's, he's going to be found not guilty by insanity. We're all just sitting there like, what the, what the hell, you know? And that was a really testing moment for me. Can I still forgive him? Or am I going to go back to this hatred piece? And... Like I said, I, I did not want to go back to that hatred piece because I know that's not who I am. And I, I it's it's just a really dark place to be. You, you, you think of, like, just awful things. In 1963, the Pearson family seemed united in their love for Howard and generously offered him support. The trust gave him a monthly stipend for living expenses and he had the freedom to go wherever he pleased. He went to California and ultimately ended up in Spokane, Washington. And this is where this kind of story often ends. According to some newspaper accounts, he died in the 1970s by accidental drowning. Not quite. This story had twisted and turned in so many different directions by this point. I knew I had to dig deeper. And I had a hard time sorting out what happened to Howard after his release in 1963. I knew that he had changed his name legally to Robert Hamilton. Remember that name because it pops up a lot. And there were unanswered questions about an even larger amount of family money that had been placed in a trust. But I didn't know any of it until I met Howard's niece, Anne, about three months into this project. She called Howard Uncle Bob. Anne knew Uncle Bob while he was at Rusk and after he was released. They talked in person, and she felt comfortable around him. She said that he really struggled after spending so much time institutionalized. The real world was a challenge for Howard Pearson. He'd never had an adult life before then, and he spent a lot of time just sort of figuring out life. There were some stipulations to his release, some caveats to receiving the money. And those requirements were not easy for Howard. When he was first released, he was expected to work, and he actually did get a job. I think he held down a couple of jobs. I'm not sure either of them lasted really long, and um, he wasn't very interested in them. I think he worked in a photography shop for a while because that was one of his hobbies. But he probably found it difficult to work in a you know, work for somebody in a business. Howard needed help finding a job, so he reached out to his relatives. He wrote to an uncle asking to use him as a job reference. Howard needed to explain where he had worked for the past 30 years. So he asked his uncle to say that Howard had worked on his ranch. But Howard wasn't sure how much a ranch hand actually made. So he asked his uncle for guidance. And he told him that he hoped to get a job as a salesman soon. He wanted to go back to school to learn radio and TV repair. So Howard was struggling to find steady work. 
But he did manage to hold down a couple of different jobs for a few years. But about 1970, something changed. He had been living off of that income from when he was first released, but he needed more money. Or rather, he wanted more money. You know, then he decided that he needed to break this trust and take control over his finances. And you could hear him talking about, maybe I want to have a girlfriend, maybe I might get married. And I think he was experimenting around with, you know, living, shall we say. Seven years after his release from Rusk, Howard was ready to receive the rest of his money from his parents' estate. And a reminder, that was a lot of money. Howard's portion was more than $800,000, and that's 1970s money. But Anne says that her uncle just hoped for a normal life and more control. Howard was concerned that if he were to marry, his new wife would find out about his past, his mental illness. And he wanted to buy a house in Spokane. That makes sense to me. Except not everyone agreed that Howard was ready for such a large lump sum. Bill and Alice had hired several attorneys to advise them about Howard's trust. And those attorneys thought that breaking the trust and giving him all of that money was a bad idea, a really bad idea. The lawyers didn't think that Howard was of sound mind, even if the state of Texas had declared him sane. This was a big problem for Howard. In 1970, during this whole mess, it's clear that Howard had come to distrust his siblings. He thought they were manipulating the attorneys. And Bill and Alice seemed to be developing similar feelings toward him. Howard complained about the trust's restrictions. He kept saying that breaking the trust would be psychologically helpful and beneficial to his health and his happiness. Those were his words. One night, Alice expressed her concern in a letter to one of the attorneys. Remember that most people referred to Howard as Bob starting in 1963. Alice wrote, Bob lies a blue streak. We catch him often doing this. On the same day, he told us that he would not press the case were he unable to get signatures of all necessary beneficiaries. He told Martha he planned to go to Texas in a few weeks to go to court to try and break the trust. So now Alice and Bill really didn't trust their brother. They were convinced that he would mismanage the estate if he had access to all of it. Alice wrote, We are afraid we would then have to feed him, etc. And we simply would not be financially able to support him and have even a halfway decent retirement level for ourselves. So if the trust is revoked, then he will be endangering our future old age security as well as his own. Still, we would be afraid to refuse to help him. We are all very tired as a result of his visit. Howard was very close to Alice's daughter, Marty. She would send him cookies while he was in Rusk. They wrote letters often. And between 1963 and 1970, Howard confided in Marty. And some of the things he said about his brother alarmed her. Marty once wrote this about her cousin, Bob. Bob showed animosity toward Uncle Bill as regards to his release from Rusk Hospital. Bob feels that Uncle Bill had an ulterior motive for wanting to keep him at Rusk and didn't favor his release. Bob said that the last time he was in Florida visiting Uncle Bill, he had a friendly argument with him, that Uncle Bill talked to him like a district attorney. Bob stated that he feels Uncle Bill is a fine, honest man, 
but is emotionally unstable and therefore not competent to make decisions concerning Bob's trust. Bill's daughter, Anne, says that last bit about her father being emotionally unstable was ridiculous. I was laughing about one of the things that, you know, they, that he told Marty that my dad was, had, was fearful and neurotic. And, um, and I'm laughing because I was thinking, well, my dad was not particularly fearful, although he did have a few things he was afraid of. But I think they were not unreasonable fears, you know. And he was not... He was not a, well, I mean, everybody has their issues, right? But he was not a neurotic person. I told Oliver Perkins about that comment from Howard about Ann's father being unstable. He was working hard to get this money, I think is what happened. Yes, that's what it sounds like. But I agree with you. It sounds very manipulative that he's trying to um, get Marty on his side, like she could exert some pressure on her mom and threw her mom onto Bill and somehow get that money released, which, like you said, is a similar theme to what was going on when um, his parents seemed to cut him off from the financial support to go to UT and pushed him into getting a job. But soon, Uncle Bob's visits became more tense he seemed more agitated than usual. His comments were sharper, and they all seemed to be focused on his brother. Marty's letter read, Bob showed more antagonism than in his previous visits. This animosity was aimed at Uncle Bill. I don't feel that Uncle Bill is in physical danger at this time, but Bob seems to be building a case up that, as far as I know, is unfounded. It is my opinion that my Uncle Bob is regressing and displaying some very unhealthy characteristics. When he was a teenager, he was left in charge of Howard, you know, and Howard was, I believe, 12 years younger than he was. So he was quite a bit younger. So he, he always saw my father as, as what, part of the adults, you know what I mean? I don't, he, I, think he, I don't think he saw my father as a kid like he was. So this all seemed very familiar and uncomfortable. Howard had once deeply resented his father for controlling his future, and now he was feeling the same way about his older brother. Howard felt threatened. And the last time he had felt threatened like this, it ended up in murder. Bill Pearson knew that his brother was capable of killing someone who was close to him. He knew that Howard could be triggered if he felt slighted. He might still be dangerous. Bill wrote Howard in an effort to explain why he and Alice had refused to break the trust. Bill said, As I told you when you were here, the doctors and lawyers recommended a trust. In 1963, the doctors all thought that the security and worry-free income of a trust would be very beneficial to your welfare. I thought that income from your trust plus your work would add up to a good living. Alice and I have always tried to be generous with both time and money. We secured the best psychiatrist that money could buy. I have always had your welfare at heart, and I am giving your request serious consideration. Then, after many discussions... Bill and Alice finally decided that Howard's inheritance wasn't worth fighting over any longer. For the sake of their family unity, 
the siblings allowed Howard greater access to the money in the trust. So after 35 years, Howard and his siblings had finally found peace with each other. They ended up, you know, increasing his draw from it and giving him more money. And my father sort of stepped out of it. And that, that I think, helped too. And Howard, who was now Robert Hamilton, tried to make a life for himself in Spokane, Washington. He had a woman friend, or he used to call her his girlfriend sometimes. I don't think there was ever really anything romantically involved in it. He, when he first went there, his first interest was photography. And then he got interested in rock hounding, so he started doing that. Howard became a gemologist, someone who studies gemstones, and he loved metal detecting. It was partly his ability to use the device, but it was also his ability to dig holes in turf and then replace the turf so that nobody could tell he had done any damage. Estates in Europe paid for him to go over there and run his metal detector all over their yards and dig up any piece of metal because he was so good at it that once he got finished, they couldn't tell that any holes had been dug. Ann Pearson wasn't the only family member who kept up with Howard. After another month of searching, I finally found Tom Bledsoe. His mother was Marty, Howard's niece and confidant, and his grandmother was Alice. Tom was a teenager when Uncle Bob came to visit Alice and their family. Basically, he was just a kind of a gentleman. He would come visit us at the house. Try to remember if he stayed with us at the house. I think he did. And he helped pay for my school tuition and books. He, he was just real good to us. Howard was finally happy with the money in his trust. He helped Tom with college expenses. He bought himself a modest house, nothing too fancy. He, um, he, he was meek and mild, real soft-spoken. Once you got to know him, he was small in stature. He wasn't a big man and not real well-built or anything. Like I said, he's smaller and he'd use his hands. He's real, you know, when you talk, he would gesticate with his hands. And that was one thing about Howard Pearson. He seemed so timid. I can't imagine that someone would ever suspect Howard of anything violent had they not heard the story beforehand. It probably seemed impossible that he was capable of hurting anyone, but he did. And it was hard for some people in the family to forget that. It was certainly interesting when Tom and his wife Cheryl began dating decades ago because he had to eventually tell her about Uncle Bob. Cheryl said she was actually pretty concerned. Well, the first time I met Uncle Bob was in Marty's living room, and he had come down for a visit. And we had talked prior to his visit because I was concerned, you know, I was kind of scared. And Marty assured me that Uncle Bob was just fine and that I would, you know, find him to be very pleasant. And so Tom and I went over there and we were introduced. He was kind of bald and had real gray hair, and he was very soft-spoken, and he was happy to meet us. And I just felt awkward because I didn't really know what to say or, you know, what kind of conversation we should have. He just seemed very, very nice. Howard worked hard to appear normal, but he seemed to remain afraid of himself. He knew what he had done to his parents, 
and he worried a lot about losing control of his life once again. When Howard would visit his siblings, he would only stay a few days. Ann Pearson thinks that a psychiatrist once warned him against overstaying his welcome. You know, he would come and stay for three days. You know the old Ben Franklin saying about visitors and fish smell after three days? It was good advice. And he followed that very carefully. He wouldn't stay more than three days. Howard and Bill grew closer, and he visited Florida often. Anne says she was always happy to see him because he seemed kind. But even so, Bill and Alice would forever remain cautious around their brother. I didn't have trouble sleeping when he was in the house, let's put it that way, anything like that. But there was always lurking in the back of your mind that maybe he would slip back into the schizophrenia again, which we didn't really expect to have happen, but, you know, everybody wanted to be just making sure it didn't, you know. When family friends were around, Howard was sometimes referred to as a cousin. He was constantly afraid of strangers finding out that he was the Howard Pearson, the one who killed his parents in Texas and spent almost 30 years in a mental hospital. He just drew a line there and he wasn't... I think if I think he was afraid if he started talking about things that he would let something would get out and he was he was really paranoid about people finding out his real name and his history. Anne says that his paranoia even affected how she was allowed to communicate with him. When I lived overseas, when I would mail him things, he didn't like to have he didn't like to have my last name Pearson on anything I mailed to him. But if I mailed him a package, it had to go through customs and it had to have my name as the sender on it. And we talked this over, and he finally decided that it was okay for me to, to do that because he liked getting packages, okay? And that was worth running the risk, which he, which he said realistically is very low that anybody would look at my name being Pearson and his name being Hamilton and connect him years ago with this crime in Texas. Oliver Perkins says that seems odd to him, Howard's fear of being found out. This does not strike me as being somebody who is still crazy. And, and, you know, again, I'm not a mental health expert, but how common is it for a person uh, to then become not crazy 30 or 40 years in his life? Uh, That strikes me as unusual, but maybe it's not. And to a certain extent, he might be right. He was seeing a psychiatrist regularly, but he wasn't on any medication. Aside from his gnawing worry of being found out, Howard actually seemed stable. If you'd met him, you would have thought he was a little eccentric. He was um, a little different. After we were talking the other day, I was thinking about one of my friends here in Gainesville. He liked to do metal detecting, and he came over to visit. And I have this friend that lived near the campus in an older house that had, you know, people have lost money and, you know, fallen out of your pockets and stuff like that. so he wanted to go over there and detect on their property. And I, I had told her the story about him, so she knew. She thought he was a nice person, you know. And I think that's the way most people felt about him. In 1993 or 1994, Howard Pearson received some terrible news. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. When he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, that he had gone down to the library and researched it, and he seemed fixated on the mental incapacities that can come with Parkinson's. And my father had Parkinson's. I had never heard about mental issues with Parkinson's. I I always remember being kind of shocked that there were mental issues with it. 
the neighbor said that's really all he could talk about was that the, you know that he might lose he might lose you know mental capacity according to the neighbor that was what really worried him i know he really did not want to lose control of his life the disease only compounded howard's fears he had spent his life fighting for control and now he was going to lose it i think that he felt that if he if he became incapacitated from Parkinson's or anything else, that people would find out that he had this trust. They would find out that he had changed his name. They would find out about his history. And he was very afraid of people finding out about his history. Defense attorney Krista Chacona says that, in some ways, the end of Howard Pearson's life was just as tragic as the time he spent in the state hospital. He was pretty intelligent, and, you know, and it's almost worse the, the more intelligent that you are sometimes because, you know, nobody wants to be perceived as being mentally ill. You don't want to be different. You don't want to be wrong or broken. Um, you don't want to have to take medication, you know, that just validates what other people are saying is there's something wrong with you. By May of 1994, Howard had started losing control of his life, and he knew that it would only get worse. He had finally had enough of the pain from Parkinson's, and he struggled constantly with the fear that his past would be exposed. So he made one last plan. Howard Pearson was going to take back control. He went to Sears and bought some heavy wrenches. Slowly, Howard climbed into his car and started driving. But he basically drove to, to the river in Spokane and left his wallet and I think a note in the car. And then he put the, his belt through the handles of the wrenches and tightened his belt. Howard was alone on the shore. He stepped to the edge of the Spokane River, weighted down by the heavy wrenches and began wading in. And so he walked into the river and drowned himself. And they didn't find his body for several weeks. It took a bit of digging, but I finally found Howard's obituary printed in the local newspaper. It read, the body pulled out of Spokane River on Friday has been identified as Robert Thomas Hamilton, 79, of Spokane. Hamilton was last seen on May 1st and was reported missing three days later. City police investigating Hamilton's disappearance found his car several weeks ago. Inside, detectives found a note that said, too much pain, water eases pain. The doors were unlocked and keys inside. Hamilton had serious health problems, deputies said. After years of psychological challenges, Howard's story was over. But now we're left wondering just who was the real Howard Pearson? We know he was capable of murder, but I keep coming back to the key question. What was his motive? Was he really schizophrenic? Was he greedy and driven by money? Or was he abused by his father to the point that it pushed him over the edge? Tom Bledsoe's wife, Cheryl, has a theory. He just was a very gentle man. And I concluded that he just got pushed to his limit. You know, people can only take certain abuses for so long before something 
snaps and they have to stop it. And I think that was his only conclusion on how he could stop it. And he was in treatment for so long. And I felt that if he was still a danger to society, Alice and Uncle Bill would have never, you know, supported his release. I didn't feel threatened by him or, you know, like he was a simmering pot or anything like that. But one thing that really sticks with me is what happened with his mother. I understand that he thought she needed to be killed too, or he wouldn't receive any of the life insurance money. But running her over after shooting her seems needlessly brutal. I asked Tom and his wife Cheryl about it. I mean, I always wondered because he did kill both of them. And I don't know how his mom figured into that unless it was money involved and, you know, something like that. But I never really gave it a lot of thought back then because the only stories I heard was his dad was real overbearing and, and drove him to it. So that's basically all we heard. I just wondered if he included Lena because she didn't try to protect him from his dad. That's what I think. I think you're right. I think that she was supposed to protect them. Now, I haven't read anything about Lena from Bill or from Alice or from anybody. So I, I don't know if that's true or not. But I can imagine that she must have she must have been, you know, passive, I imagine. Yeah, that's how I picture it in my head. And Anne Pearson agrees. Her grandmother might have betrayed Howard even more than his abusive father. That can be a real issue for children. If one parent is abusive and the other parent doesn't protect you, then you come to resent both of them. I know that's true. I mean, I've been, I was a school counselor for 30 years. I can tell you that's true as a general rule with children. Clearly, the story still isn't easy to sort out. Bill Pearson had a tremendous amount of anger toward his father, the judge. Yet there was still a loss for him when his brother killed his parents, a hole left empty in the family. My father and his father had a troubled relationship, but my dad could see a lot of good things about his father. He could tell you he had a lot of stories about the good things that my grandfather did. And he was proud of some of the good things my grandfather did. And he was proud of his mother and like, you know, close to his mother. So I know they definitely felt a loss. Part of the wonderful thing about this podcast is how I get to connect with families. These stories are deep dives into their history. Some of their memories are horrible, but some are inspiring. And I love being able to give them information about their families that might have been hidden. It's like having hundreds of tiny pieces of fabric and I'm collecting them all to create this quilt. Gray Pearson says that despite the sad outcome of Howard's life and the tragic deaths of William and Lena Pearson, he's still really proud of his family. Do you think there's a lesson here in any of this, in this whole story? I think the lesson uh, is best taught by Bill and Alice, one of kindness and forgiveness. I think that's an extraordinarily important lesson. It would have been so easy for them to become bitter and filled with hatred. It would be understandable had that happened. But for them to have the maturity and the, the kindness within their, their, their souls to be able to handle this in the way they did, that to me is a fantastic, wonderful lesson. And it sounds as if the entire family was supportive of Howard all the way around. 
Oliver Perkins says that his grandfather represented Howard in court. And to Oliver, it's pretty clear that his grandfather never blamed Howard for the deaths of his parents. Remember, my, he's Oliver Cunningham is married to Ruth Pearson, who was half-sister to Will. And if Ruth was just horribly upset and blaming of Howard for murdering her half-brother, I would have assumed that her husband would not have been Howard's lawyer. You know, I can't, I do not remember anyone ever saying anything bad about Howard. And I think that comes down to the issue of Howard's sanity. The Pearsons have unequivocally felt he was mentally ill and also under tremendous pressure. I could understand the motivations that he wanted the money and that he was angry at his father because his father was not a, not a nice person to him. And he felt his father was holding him down. I think he really felt that his father was keeping him from doing what he could do. He had these resentments, which were, you know, understandable, but I also think he had voices telling him that he should do something about them. But Oliver Perkins isn't so sure. I was very skeptical of your ultimate goal of being able to develop some insight into Howard's motivation. I think I made the comment that I've always found it difficult to read people's minds and it's extra difficult when they're dead. But it seems like you've uncovered some evidence that causes me to back off that opinion a little bit. I mean, I'm not saying you're right, but I'm kind of impressed with the fact that you've uncovered this evidence, more evidence that Howard was, I'm going to use the word obsessed with monetary stuff to him, and that this certainly could have been a motivation for his killing his parents. Author Gary Laverne says that Howard's story is one of privilege, frankly. When I think of the story of Howard Pearson, I don't necessarily disagree with what ended up happening to him. I just wish that we had a system, a criminal justice system, that was as thoughtful with other people who don't have the resources and who don't have the money to hire lawyers who graduated from Harvard Law School. Well, he's definitely right about that. In some ways, Howard Pearson was really lucky, at least in court. And this story has taught Ann Pearson something. Maybe not every family has this type of skeleton in its closet. I have friends, you know, close friends who know this story, so I have talked to people about it. But um, I remember driving to North Carolina about three years ago with some friends and ended up telling them the story. It's a nine-hour drive in the car, you know. And me saying, well, everybody's family has stories like, I'm sure, and they say, not really, you know. <laughs> to me, it's like, to me, it's just like part of, part of the way the world is, you know, everybody, everybody must have families who have stories like this. But maybe that's not really true. (laughs) 
Tenfold More Wicked is going on hiatus while we start digging into three new historical true crime stories. But we're not going anywhere. In just a few weeks, please look out for my companion podcast, Wicked Words, on Exactly Right. I'll interview journalists and writers about their best true crime cases. You'll hear from the filmmaker who investigated the Long Island serial killer. You'll meet the psychologist who spent years exploring the mind of BTK killer Dennis Rader. And you'll hear from a New York Times bestselling author who went to high school with a serial killer. These are the stories behind the stories. So get ready for Wicked Words, coming soon to the Tenfold More Wicked feed. And if you love true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. They're available anywhere you buy books. This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. The letters mentioned in this episode were kindly supplied by the East Texas Research Center at Stephen F. Austin State University. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.